Well, good morning. Try that again. Good morning. Hello. I know it's a little frigid in here. We're trying to keep you awake. We don't know what to do post-summer anymore um, with the air conditioning. But we're so glad that y'all are here. My name is Ali Shulman. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are only in week two, so you haven't missed much, of this new sermon series, The Wisdom of Trees. i got to be honest. Uh, I'll let you behind the curtain a little bit. We decide on these sermon series like way in advance. So we knew what we were preaching on. And when it came my time to preach this week, I was like, oh, why did we choose trees? Why, what do we have to learn about trees? It took me a second to remember. So I started kind of looking into, okay, trees, Bible, God, what do all these things have in common? And tried to do a little bit of deep dive on what that meant. And what I discovered was one of my favorite facts that I'm going to hold on to for a long time. Do you know what the most mentioned living thing besides God and humans is in the Bible? Trees. It is trees. Trees are mentioned over 800 times. That's not including, like, the names of trees, like sequoias or firs. And those are mentioned a lot of times, too. But trees is the most named thing, living thing, in the Bible besides humans and God. That is fascinating. And then when you look at it and you start to think all these biblical stories and you start to list out all these important verses, you start to realize how many of them have the word tree or reference to vine or branch or leaf in them. A lot. A lot. Trees tend to play a central role in the biblical story. And so as I was trying to figure this out this week, I started to look back and I wanted to look at Okay, what is the first time that trees are mentioned in the Bible? So will you entertain me for a little bit while we go through a little bit of my headspace and thinking about why trees are important? So I went to the first place that trees are mentioned in the Bible. Where's the first place that they're mentioned? Genesis. Yes, Genesis, because God creates them, right, on the third day. And so this is the first time that it is mentioned in the Bible. And let's look at how God describes trees. The Bible says, God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it. This is a really interesting way to think about what trees are. What's interesting about this is, I mean, he could have just said, like, plant the things in the ground that grow branches and have roots, do that. But instead, he focuses on the seed-bearing and producing fruit. That's our first clue that there's something different about trees that we need to pay attention to. Trees, from this point forward, are an imagery, an image of self-generating life. Life that comes from the ground, from God, produces fruit, then that fruit falls off, feeds something else, and guess what? More life, more life comes from that. Over and over and over again, we have this image of a tree as being the one organism that is able to reproduce that fruit. Now, of course, there's other things in nature that do that, tons. But for the Bible, it seems like the tree is the important thing that we need to keep in mind. Now, I'm going to totally geek out in a second, so you're going to bear with me as I put this image up here, and we're going to walk through it. Because then my next question was, great, trees, important, got it. What do they have to do with humans? Like, what do they have to do with us? And so I got looked back at Genesis 1, and when we're looking at Genesis 1, when we're looking at anything in the Bible, one of the things that's most important is to recognize patterns. Every word matters, and its placement matters too. We believe that the Holy Spirit worked through the scribes who wrote the Bible and helped them organize it in a way that we can make meaning from it. 
And so when I looked at Genesis 1, I knew I was looking at these patterns. So let's look. Genesis 1, remember, is that first tale of creation, the first six days, right? Okay. So look at this. When we look at Genesis 1, you have the first three days on the left-hand column, and then four, five, and six on the right. Yes? And what do we notice immediately? First day, separate darkness from light. On the fourth day, what happens? God fills that darkness and light with something. Second day, separate sky from water. What happens on the fifth day? He fills the sky and water with animals. Third day, separate land from water. What happens on the sixth day? Land animals come into the land. Now, that's all interesting and dorky and cool. But then we get to this weird part because on the third and sixth day, there's an extra thing. There's an extra thing that gets created. That's weird. Why would there be an extra thing if those two things weren't meant to be analogous? If we weren't supposed to look at it and say, huh, trees, vegetation who produces fruit, and humans, who what is the commandment that humans are supposed to do? Be fruitful and multiply. It's the same word. And in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, that's important. That's supposed to give us a clue about what we're supposed to learn about trees. You see, trees are not just things that produce life or produce fruit. You see, a tree, its whole purpose is to flourish, to produce fruit so that other people can take part in that fruit so that they can have life. You see, a tree is known by its fruit. And what Genesis points us to and the rest of the biblical story confirms is that the people of God are also supposed to be known by their fruit. And that's what we talked about last week. That's what Stephen led us through, is that the purpose of a tree is clear. It is supposed to bear fruit. But our purpose is also clear. We are also supposed to bear fruit. Now, the word that we're using in this series is flourish. We're supposed to have this life of flourishing, a blessing to other people. And the question of the series is, okay, how do, how do we get there? Like, how do we get to that life of flourishing? And so what we're looking at is we're looking at the wisdom that trees can provide us, both in nature and in the Bible, and we're looking at how we can learn from those principles. And we've chosen seven. We've already did one last week. We've chosen seven principles that we think are important for us to listen to. And so this week, the principle is this. A flourishing life requires rhythm. A flourishing life requires rhythm. So let's take a moment and talk a bit about what, what do I mean? What is actual rhythm? What are we referring to? And so this, this is the definition of rhythm. It is a strong, regular, repeated, and often, though not always, shared pattern. It is strong because it is obvious. There is commitment to it. It is not, you're like not unsure that it's happening. It is obvious pattern that something is committed to. It is regular because it happens at predictable time intervals. It is repeated because it's the same thing that's done over and over again. And the last one, it is shared because even though individuals can have rhythms, you can have rhythms in your own life, and I encourage those rhythms, the most powerful rhythms are often shared. And this is true in nature, and this is true how species work, right? We identify rhythms in nature, 
by the fact that lots of species share that rhythm, right? And so often when we think of rhythms, we think of this narrow definition of what is the rhythm in my life, but I think actually what nature might have to tell us is that it's more powerful when it's shared. And trees have this rhythm. We recognize this rhythm now-ish. I started to see some leaves on the ground at the park yesterday, and I was like, oh my God, it's coming, it's coming. So we have rhythms that we identify in trees, right? Typical seasonal pattern in temperate forest, right? Temperate forest, the leaves will fall off in the fall because the trees need to conserve energy and water. Then the sap will come up the roots in the spring as soon as it starts to get warm, and it will start to flower and fruit and produce leaves in the spring. Another tree will grow in that process, another ring in the girth of the tree, and the tree will continue to grow every year. It's an annual rhythm. You know what's interesting is that it's not just temperate forests that do that. Tropical forests do it too, just in a different way. Even when there's no decipherable season, like there's no sense of like, this is hot season and this is cold season. Tropical trees still have seasons. They stop growing in what scientists call their winter. They become dormant. And then in their summer, they start to grow again. They each have a cycle, a rhythm, a seasonal pattern. But do you know what's interesting about trees that I learned this time around as I was looking at? It's not just seasonal patterns. Trees have daily patterns. Did you all know that? Trees have daily patterns. So look at this. Look at this. Okay. Black line, light. Light, high point, day, low point, night. Okay? Red line is the girth of the tree. It's like how it's measured. Did you know that every night a tree shrinks a little bit? Most trees shrink a little bit? I did not know that. That blew my mind. Every, every night, trees follow a rhythm of maintaining their water pressure by shrinking and then expanding. And you know what's even crazier besides this? Okay, let's look at this picture real quick. Okay, so the one on the left is night. The one on the right is day. And we couldn't really measure this for a long time because we, every time we take a picture, there'd be a flash. But then we used infrared lasers. And now we can tell that at night, what do trees' limbs do? They droop a little bit. And then in the day, they start to come up. Isn't that crazy? Trees sleep. It's nuts. <laughs> they sleep, but they do. They have these rhythms that we're only now being able to recognize the rhythm that is inherent, not just in these seasonal patterns that we can see, but also in these daily patterns. And so the question becomes for us, when we're trying to go into Genesis 1 and figure out, okay, what does this mean for me? If trees are analogous to humans, then I have to figure out, yes, we're supposed to have rhythms. But to really understand which rhythms, we need to ask the question, why? Why do trees have rhythms? What is the benefit? And actually, thank goodness, because of science and ecological research, those answers are fairly easy. We have some conjectures about that. Trees have rhythms. For example, they lose their leaves in the fall to conserve their energy, right? And then at night, when they droop their limbs, one hypothesis is that it really just takes a lot of energy to uphold your limbs upright. And so they need to rest and let go of that energy to conserve it when there's no light happening at night. In other words, trees have rhythms to maintain their energy and focus so they can do what they were created to do. 
they have rhythms to help them generate life. They have to conserve their energy so that they can be able to produce fruit. And what helps them do that? Their rhythms, their daily and seasonal rhythms. That's what helps them maintain their life. If they wasted all this energy just choosing what they wanted to do or when they wanted to droop their branches, they wouldn't have enough life to be able to generate life. Does that make sense? Trees have rhythms to help them stay focused and maintain the energy so that they can do what they were created to do. And for us, rhythms are no different. Rhythms are no different because rhythms for us are a strong, regular, repeated, and often shared, though not always, pattern to help you stay focused on what's important. We talked about that idea of what's important last week, right? With that graph that Stephen showed us. If you weren't here, you can go back and listen to it and watch it online. But on that graph, the idea is that you stay in the quadrant that's what's important and not urgent. That means and that requires that you are constantly focused on what's important. That when every other priority starts to sprinkle into your life and you start to get distracted, you let what's important stay on the top. You have to stay focused in order to maintain your purpose. You have to know what's important in order to maintain and drive yourself to where you're supposed to go. Rhythms, I would argue, are the thing, the patterns in our life that help us stay focused. When we don't have rhythms, we're gonna stay in those other three quadrants and those quadrants of things that are urgent, that are not important, and the things that are not urgent, but not important either, we're gonna stay in those getting distracted by the little emails and notifications that we get, and the news headlines. We're gonna be distracted by the things that are going on around us if we don't have rhythms in our life. Because in the same way that rhythms work in trees' lives, they work in ours. Rhythms help steady the boat. They help everything that maintains our life that helps us go, it keeps it at a steady level so we can stay focused on what we need to focus on. And if you take a minute and you think about all the things in your life that help you live life, there's a lot. And I would argue that most of those things need to have rhythms, right? Your home needs to have a rhythm of how you maintain it, of how you keep it clean. You already have these rhythms, right? Your body needs a rhythm of how you keep it well and functioning, how you pay attention to it. Your friendships need a rhythm, how you're going to maintain them, even though distance and schedules conflict. You have to have a rhythm for these things so that you can stay focused on what matters. Because here's the reality. We can talk all day. You can talk all day about what matters to you. You can tell me all day, yes, 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 yes. The things that matter to me are God and my family and my friends. You can tell me that all day. But unless your calendar, your time, and your energy reflect that, you're not gonna go anywhere. It does not matter that you know what's important unless you have the calendar to reflect it. And rhythms are what helps us get us there, what helps us get to our purpose. And so as I started to think about, well, what kind of rhythms can we implement? What's really hard is that there's tons. 
I could sit up here and give you tons of questions, and actually we probably will on Social Tomorrow post some inventory questions about how to think about your rhythms differently. But I started to think about, well, what is the rhythm that actually matters the most? What is the rhythm if I drill down? Like, what actually sustains our life the most? And I think it's actually the rhythm that we don't pay attention to the most because it doesn't have the physical symptoms of everything else. And that's, that's the rhythm of our soul. Sometimes we call this thing the soul that's really our connection to God. It has lots of names and lots of different cultures, but the idea of a soul is it's the part of God in you, the image of God that you bear. It's supposed to be a connection, a life source, the root, so to speak. It's the source that you draw life from. But for lots of historical reasons, over time, those rhythms have started to fade out in the church and among religious people. And so as I started to think about, well, what are those rhythms and how do I talk about them, I was kept going back to conversations that uh, I had a few weeks ago about the rhythms of a particular group, our spiritual ancestors, the Jews, and how they maintain their rhythms. How many of y'all have been to Israel? How many of y'all have been to Israel? A few? Yeah. So in Israel, it's really obvious the rhythms that are happening there. And I'm going to talk through a little bit about their rhythms in hopes that it can paint a picture about how we can start thinking about these rhythms of the soul for us. But first things first is whenever you're thinking about rhythms, you should do it in time increments. So you need to think about your rhythms as daily, weekly, and seasonally. Sometimes with weekly, you can do monthly as well. But daily, weekly, monthly, and seasonally, you always need to be thinking about whatever rhythm you're, you're kind of cultivating, how do they function in these three realms. So for our first realm, when we start thinking about what do our daily rhythms of the soul look like, I came across this quote. I, I love this quote from A Writing Life uh, from Annie Dillard. And here's what she says about daily rhythms. How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. What we do with this hour, and that one, is what we are doing. A schedule defends from chaos and whim. It is a net for catching days. And while in scripture you won't find a prescription of a set schedule, like, hey, here's what you're supposed to do, you do find these references that are not supposed to be ignored about daily rhythms. You find them all over. I, I chose this one from the Psalms. But there's a reference to some type of daily rhythm of prayer. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. It's not just incidental that there's morning prayer. David references this time over and over and over again in the Psalms as if it's a set thing that he does. And it comes over again and again. And we see it in Scripture, this idea of a prayer time, of a set prayer time. And when you look at Jewish culture today, that rhythm has been transformed into something called the Amidah. The Amidah is a prayer said throughout the world three times a day, different times, but morning, noon, night-ish. And it's said three times by all Jews facing Jerusalem. And what the Amidah does is it starts with three praises of God. In the middle, there's 19 blessings. So think of it as like prayer requests. Bless these people, bless these people, bless these people. And they go through them. And then at the end, it ends with three gratitudes towards God. And that's it. And they just recite it silently. And it kind of it looks like this when it's translated. 
My Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall declare your praise. Blessed are you, Lord, our God and God of our fathers, God of Abraham, God of Isaac and God of Jacob, the great, mighty and awesome God, exalted God who bestows bountiful kindness, who creates all things, who remembers the piety of his patriarchs and who in love brings a redeemer to their children, his children for the sake of his name. It goes on and on and on like this. And what's interesting about this prayer is not just that it's a set liturgy, it's something that's been agreed upon that people say over and over and over again. I started to think, well, why do so many cultures and religious practices, why do they have this custom of daily prayer? What is the point? What does it do for us? What is, like trees with their limbs when they droop them at night, what does prayer every day do for us? I want you to imagine what your life would be like if you stopped mid-lunch break and said something like this, what does it automatically do to your heart and your mind when you start to remind yourself that all this work you've been doing, all this busyness that you've been doing all day, that commute that you really hated that got over it and da 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 da, da what if all that you stopped in the middle of the day and reminded yourself of who actually is in charge here, because it ain't you, right? What if you took a moment to orient yourself around the idea of who really is in charge? You think, you know, that's what I, th I think this Amidah does, or any type of daily prayer. It's like, um, it's like food. It's like spiritual nourishment that we have to partake in, that our, our soul gets weary and kind of hangry if we don't have it. We need that daily reassurance, that daily orientation around God. You see, we're supposed to have our eyes on God at all times, but life gets in the way, and we definitely don't. But we need that reminder every day, and this tradition would say three times a day. Muslims would say five times a day in order to orient our hearts towards God. We can't be left to our own devices, not even for 24 hours. Right? If we did that, we'd do what we did in the garden. That's the whole imagery around choosing the tree of good, knowledge of good and evil. We chose the wrong thing. And so every day, we need to remind ourselves, to orient ourselves back to God. And most practices will tell you not once a day, but at least three, maybe five, maybe more, maybe every hour. Right? Monks right now, they have a liturgy of the hours that has worship at least eight times a day. And the purpose of that is to reorient their hearts back to God. Because they know, they know they desperately need it. So that's our first, our first daily practice. Now, the second one is the weekly practice of the Jews. And you all know this one. Work can be done for six days, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of special rest which is a holy occasion. We've talked about the Sabbath before. If you've ever been to Israel and walked around on a Saturday, at first it feels really creepy because no one's out, like no one's doing anything. But then you'll go by like the parks and the gathering places outside and everyone's out. Like everyone has big picnic blankets and the food that they prepared yesterday and they're all sitting out and just lying. They don't have anything to do. All they're doing is reading and talking and eating. And we have our own version of that. If you go drive around Preston Forest, right, up there off Willow, it's the same thing. People are outside in their lawns with, playing volleyball with chairs out. 
The Sabbath is a strange custom to us now, but it actually comes from the fourth of the Ten Commandments. Sometimes we think this is like a lesser commandment, like down on the bottom, maybe number ten. It's the fourth. After all the ones that tell us to put God first, then it says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. There seems to be this idea built into the Sabbath that God understood that we needed a break during the week. Not a break just to like hang out, but a break that refocused on the point of our labor. We would labor for six days, and on the seventh, we would rest. And in a lot of ways, it does what prayer does. It helps us reorient our heart to what matters, to remind us that, newsflash, you're not in charge, and guess what? The world keeps going when you stop, right? It reminds us of that fact, that we are in fact not in charge. But I actually think the Sabbath reminds us of something deeper. For a lot of time in my 20s, I tried to practice the Sabbath by myself. But because my husband and I's schedules were off, it was always by myself. And if you've ever tried to practice the Sabbath by yourself, it is not fun. It is not fruitful. You start, you start to feel like this cannot be a commandment. This cannot be what it was meant for. And it took me a hot minute to realize, like, oh, oh, Jews always celebrate this day together. Like, that's the whole point. They start dinner on Friday night, then they end it with dinner on Saturday night with people. And sometimes it's your family, sometimes it's your congregation, sometimes it's people in your area or your neighborhood, but it's always supposed to be together. That's why there's prayers for guests and prayers for different people in the liturgy. I think the Sabbath is actually not just about orienting us towards God. I think it's supposed to orient us to each other. Because my guess is if I ask you, okay, what's important to you? One of the things would be relationships, would be people, your people, whoever those are. Those are important to you. But so often in this world, we get distracted from that very connection. And what the Sabbath offers us, I think, is an opportunity to reconnect with each other without distraction without checking emails, without the TV on, without things in our way. It offers us a chance to be hospitable, to invite other people into our space. It offers us a chance to be together. I once heard the Sabbath described as the ultimate gift of delight. Like here's God labored for six days, and on the seventh day, we get to delight in his creation. We get to receive the gift. My guess is that God's greatest gift to us is each other. And on the Sabbath, we get to participate in that. So that's our weekly rhythm. If you keep reading in the Leviticus chapter 23, it's a really interesting chapter. It talks about all the ways that Jews are supposed to organize their lives. Sabbath is at the top. And then it goes on to this whole discussion of holidays, of all these holidays that are prescribed in the Jewish calendar. And interestingly, we were actually at the tail end of the Jewish high holiday season, right? So we had Rosh Hashanah t- a week-ish ago. That's the beginning of the new year. Yom Kippur was a few days ago. That's the Day of Atonement. And we move into these set calendars that Jews follow all across the world where they celebrate together. And all of them involve some type of liturgy, some type of thing they say together. And I think just like prayer and the Sabbath, it orients us to God, it orients us to each other. But what I find unique about holidays, about the seasonal celebrations, is that I think they're a chance for us to collectively remember God's work. 
That's what almost all the holidays are about in the Jewish calendar. They remember a historical event, right? We're about to move up into Sukkot, which is a holiday that remembers when God moved the Israelites all the way into the promised land and he kept them safe. He provided them shelter. And so the celebration is that you create a little hut to remember God's shelter, They're all tied to remembering God's presence and what we've done in what he's done in the world. Because let me tell you, if you want to learn one thing from the Bible, it's that we have really short-term memory. And we need to be reminded over and over and over again. So if we have these rhythms, right, the daily one to remind us about God every day, multiple times a day, weekly to remind us of God's gift that we are to each other, every week we have that seasonally, we have these set times where we remember, oh, yeah, 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 God did that. Oh, yeah, 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 God did that. And we need to say it out loud to each other so that we can live and flourish and stay connected to the source of all life. And so I'm not going to leave you with a set of, like, here's your prescribed rhythms. Christianity, for a lot of reasons, has lots of options on that. And I do want you to be thinking about that. But what I want you to leave more than anything is I want you to leave with a set of questions to walk into lunch with. I want you to be thinking about how your life right now is programmed. What are the rhythms daily, weekly, and seasonally that you have in your life and how do they serve you? Do they help you flourish or do they not? Daily, do you have a practice that reminds you of who the source of all life is? Do you have a practice that comes from wisdom that you need to orient your, God, orient your heart back to God? Do you have that in your life? Weekly, do you have a time, maybe not 24 hours, but do you have a time every week set apart where you practice eating together, being with each other, chatting with people? That could mean you invite people over to your house. It could be a family meal. It could be you go over to someone else's house, whatever that looks like. Do you have a rhythm every week that looks like that? And then finally, seasonally, do you, and this is a hard one, guys, I'm about to break up Christmas. You ready? All right. We're about to go in the Christmas season. Christmas is lovely and magical and everything it should be. And I love how hard and well you guys celebrate. I also want us to remember how to intentionally celebrate that season so that we stay connected to the God who created it and the reason that we're celebrating it, so that we can flourish too, even up until December 25th. And look, quick plug, if this is really hard for you, we're going to release a guide to helping you plan Christmas in November. It's like a pet project of mine. So in November, we're going to give you a list of like how to do this well, how to think about this better, because my goal is for everyone to have the most joyous Advent Christmas season so that you can be a blessing to others like you were called to be. Yeah? But as we head in, and we're already in Halloween and Thanksgiving seasons as well, how are you celebrating holidays? Do those stay in the realm of remembering God's redemptive work? Because I think even Thanksgiving and even Halloween with its ties can have ties to that at some level. Okay? All right. That's all. 
Tomorrow on social media, I'll post a little bit of some of these questions you can go over with your spouse or with the people in your, in your life, with your family, to kind of move over. What are those rhythms in my life? How can I think critically about them? Okay, let's pray. God of all seasons, God who comes and gives us these intentional rhythms in our life, who allows us and teaches us and wants us to bloom and flourish so that we can be blessings to other. Lord, we need your help. We often forget and get lost and get lost in the world. We get distracted. We need your help staying anchored in these rhythms so that we can generate life. Lord, it is only through you that we are able to do this. And we ask that your spirit be felt this week as we intentionally think about the rhythms that set our world and our life. And we examine them more closely. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.